Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. What is fascism? This is something that political scientists, that historians, that philosophers, that other scholars have argued about since there has been fascism. There seems to be no coherent, agreed-upon definition of it. And... After you listen to this podcast, I do not presume that you will have a coherent definition of it, but I hope to offer some clarity today. I don't think it's something that you can actually nail down, but it is something that perhaps you can get a good sense of. That's not necessarily satisfactory, but really it's the best we can do, because fascism, it is not really a set of policies that are really thought about or rational. More so than anything else, it's been something that's felt. In a 1944 essay titled What is Fascism, George Orwell wrote, quote, Of all the unanswered questions of our time, perhaps the most important is what is fascism? One of the social survey organizations in America recently asked this question of a hundred different people. By the way, a hundred different people is not a very big N, but moving on. And got answers ranging from pure democracy to pure diabolism. In this country, and there George Orwell means Britain, if you ask the average thinking person to define fascism, he usually answers by pointing to the German and Italian regimes. But this is very unsatisfactory, because even the major fascist states differ from one another a good deal in structure and ideology, unquote. And that was in 1944. At that point, fascism wasn't something that was abstract or historical, or in the rearview mirror, in 1944, George Orwell and many of his friends and neighbors and compatriots, well, they were killing and dying because fascists were literally at their door. This wasn't theoretical for them, but they still couldn't define what it was. Orwell goes on, he says, quote, By fascism, they mean, roughly speaking, something cruel, unscrupulous, arrogant, obscurantist, anti-liberal, and anti-working class. Except for the relatively small number of fascist sympathizers, almost any English person would accept bully as a synonym for fascist. That is about as near to a definition as this much-abused word has come, unquote. And you might think that if we wanted a definition of fascism, we could just look to the fascists themselves. It's not like Mussolini and Hitler didn't give speeches or write books. They gave very long speeches. They wrote books that went on for pages and pages and pages. These guys were giant egomaniacs, and they were, well, pretty frequently very, very happy to blast their opinions out into the world. But if you're looking for consistency in fascist rhetoric, good luck. Mussolini himself said that fascists were, quote, not Republican, not socialist, not democratic, not conservative, not nationalist, but rather a synthesis of all negation and all positives, unquote. Echoing that similar sentiment of his duce, another early Italian fascist, Francisco Giunta, wrote, quote, We are neither clerical nor anti-clericals, neither Semites nor anti-Semites, neither Masons nor anti-Masons, unquote. And there he's referring to Freemasons, the secret society, not, you know, people who do stuff with bricks. So no wonder this ideology is hard to define. Its own rhetoric refuses to actually state what its principles are. 
the people most associated with fascism don't actually give you a coherent list of policies. They don't actually stand up and say, hi, guys, this is us. And again, I'm not going to try to one-up somebody like George Orwell in this podcast. I love Orwell. He's great. One of the greatest writers of all time. But I do hope at the end of this episode, you walk away more intellectually satisfied than I did after reading his short essay. So one of the big difficulties about fascism is that it's hard to define in isolation. To really get it, to really understand what fascism is about, you have to contrast it with the two other big political ideologies of the middle 20th century, socialism and liberalism. Broadly speaking, all of these systems have different focuses, and fascism is a rejection of both of them. Now, when I say liberalism, I'm not talking about the contemporary American usage of the term liberal. That use of the term liberal reflects a very, very small subset of what is considered classically liberal. No, instead I'm talking about the very broad ideology that sees individuals and individual rights as the point of focus. Liberalism is the overriding ideology of the modern West, and it is basically Adam Smith, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson type stuff. It's capitalism, it's democracy, you can even say European social democracy, though that also crosses over and complements with socialism. It's all that. And when I use the term liberal throughout this series, when I am talking about mid-20th century Italian politics, that's the version of liberalism I'm going to be talking about. So keep that in mind in future episodes. By the way, that does mean that in Italy, during the early and mid-20th century, there was such a thing as conservative liberals. Don't worry about it. It'll make sense later. But fascism is certainly not that. It's not liberalism. It's not capitalism. It's not democracy. It is not Adam Smith, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson type stuff. Fascism also stands apart from socialism, and socialism sees social class as the defining unit of engagement. Most of you are probably familiar with communism as a subset of socialism, but it's only one subset. Socialism often looks past international borders, noting commonalities with workers in one country and another, and owners in one country and another. The interplay of different classes is what socialism is broadly speaking about. And the rights of a given class, mostly the working class, to people who actually produce stuff, is what socialism advocates for. Fascism is most certainly not that. Fascism is not Karl Marx. It is not the apogee of socialism. Fascism denies the internationalism of different classes, and it denies the intranational divisions between classes. It is most certainly a rejection of socialism as well as liberalism. So fascism, it's not about individuals. It's not about classes. Instead of those things deserving rights or being its focus or being what it really considers, fascism sees the nation itself as the main unit of engagement for its ideology. The individuals within the nation and the classes within the nation, they work to serve the nation. And this is, of course, kind of weird. As I said in the last episode, nations are kind of mercurial. Individuals certainly exist. I'm one. You're one, at least, listener. I presume you're an individual. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're some weird extraterrestrial or artificial gestalt entity. If you are, that's great. Hello. But individuals are a thing. We can pin them down and point to them. Liberalism has a lot going for it there because the thing that it's really about definitively and objectively is real. Likewise, social classes and categories, while ephemeral and sometimes kind of hard to define, they definitely exist. 
I only need to look at my tax form and be reminded that I am most certainly not rich. Who owns land? Who owns capital? And who doesn't? That's also pretty easy to point to. Socialism deals with something that's also pretty real. Nations, though, are as real as we make them. And it's not bad to identify with a nation. It's not disordered or strange. In fact, if you pretend that you're some sort of post-national cosmopolitan, that you're somehow above or removed from the nation or nations that you're affiliated with, you're probably fooling yourself. I would never say that I do not have the implicit biases and the thinking and the culture that comes with being, say, a Portlander and an ex-Catholic and all that. Those are in there, and I can never get rid of those. But as I mentioned last episode, nations are really, really mercurial. They bleed into each other. They're gray. You can't really tell when one starts and another begins. And whether or not a nation is a thing at all can be the subject of a debate. And a single person can feel different national identities pulling them in different directions. As a unit of organization, they are not constant, well-defined, or unchanging at all. Not like individuals and not like social class. However, fascism would have you believe that a nation is unified, ancient, and well-defined, and more important than any other single identity that you as a citizen should have. And your other identities should be totally subordinate to it. This pretension of unity, of national unity, is right there in the very name fascism. The term refers to fasces, a bundle of sticks, often including an axe, that were born before public officials during the Roman Empire. Historian R.J.B. Bosworth writes, quote, Lictors carried the sticks and axe with solemn ceremony in order to symbolize that the office entailed the authority to judge and condemn. In the hands of fascist propagandists, the word fascism became a vehicle for Romanita, that is, Romanness, that is, extreme nationalism that oftentimes called back and identified with the Roman Empire. It expressed the boasted classical Roman inheritance of the regime. There was a linked modern meaning. The fascists pledged national unity above all. Each of the sticks represented a sector of society organically bound into the corporate system. No class, gender, regional, or other form of division would weaken the fascist state. Locked together as it was, a proletarian nation needing to end subjugation by the plutocratic established great powers in a Darwinian struggle of the national fittest. One Italian people, one fascist state, one duce at the head." Unquote. By the way, Bosworth's reference to a corporate system refers to how fascist Italy in particular organized itself politically and economically. It was not a reference to, you know, corporations like McDonald's or something. And I'll get more into corporatism and how Mussolini's Italy organized itself in a future episode. And given that all versions of fascism tailor themselves to the nation that they're in, it might be appropriate to say that there are many fascisms, not just one. Italian fascism and German fascism, after all, were different from each other, as were other regimes that are oftentimes termed fascist, such as Francisco Franco's Spain or Juan Perón's in Argentina. And early on, people acknowledged this. Indeed, as early as 1935, one journalist recognized this point, the national particularity of fascism and how it uses and exploits existing national symbols to legitimize itself, 
such as Mussolini using the fasces itself and ancient Roman imagery to construct and propagate that imagined notion of Romanness. Also, I just referred to a nation as something imagined, so take a drink. Dorothy Thompson, the head of the Berlin Bureau of the Saturday Evening Post, said that in the event of an American dictator, it wouldn't look like Italian or German fascism at all. It would look like this. She said, quote, When our dictator turns up, you can depend on it that he will be one of the boys, and he will stand for everything traditionally American. And nobody will ever say, Heil to him, nor will they ever call him Fuhrer or Duce, but they will greet him with one great big universal democratic sheep-like bleat of, Okay, chief, fix it like you wanna. Unquote. So, because fascism is always kind of like, a bespoke authoritarianism, no wonder that George Orwell and company have had trouble nailing it down. One writer, though, who attempted to find universal constants of various types of national fascisms throughout history was somebody born during Mussolini's reign in Italy, and that was Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco, if you are not familiar with him, is an amazing writer. He's a great novelist. Uh, his book, The Name of the Rose, is a great pastiche of Sherlock Holmes set in the Middle Ages, and it's about very important missing books, also murder. And his book, Foucault's Pendulum, well, that is a book about conspiracies and secret societies and weird esoteric stuff. It is probably what Dan Brown wishes he was. Seriously, Umberto Eco. He's great. Read his books. In an essay that's been variously titled in English as Ur-Fascism or Eternal Fascism, Echo lays out 14 different characteristics of fascist regimes. His list consists of 1. A cult of tradition. This is where you get lots of imagined notions of history. More on that in a future episode with Italy specifically. 2. A rejection of modernism. A rejection of things like rationalism, science, critical thought, that type of thing. 3. A cult of action for action's sake. 4. A policy of disagreement being treason. 5. A fear of difference. Again, everyone has to be unified. Everybody has to be part of that one great big fascist state. 6. An appeal to a frustrated middle class. Promising them all the great stuff that they're going to get once troublesome things like democracy and capitalism and socialism are swept away. 7. An obsession with a plot or plots by outside forces. This often incorporates a fair amount of xenophobia and racism. 8. At the same time, demonizing the enemy as weak or decadent. Sure, we've got to be on watch for this enemy, but at the same time, they are so not evolved as us. It's contradictory, but that doesn't matter. 9. Characterizing pacifism as treason and a life of permanent warfare. Fascists think war is great. It's good for the state. It's like going to the gym. 10. Contempt for the weak. Fascism is not an ideology of empathy. 11. A cult of heroism, in which every member of the nation is superior to outsiders, simply by virtue of being a member of that nation. You don't need to try to be a hero. You were just born in the right place. And... Yahtzee, you get to be a member of the hero people. 12. An emphasis on machismo. This goes hand in hand with a strong vein of sexism 
And fascism is not progressive with regard to gender roles or sexuality. In a future episode, we'll get into, like, weird ideas that Mussolini had about moms. 13. Selective populism. That is, the state claims to speak for a monolithic common will that individuals are not free to deviate from. Fascism always claims to be speaking to the national will or expressing the will of the people. However, this is a will that's not really assessed by things like elections or polls or, you know, people writing letters to the editor, that sort of thing. It's just something that's felt. And 14. Newspeak. Using what Echo calls an impoverished vocabulary. A vocabulary that limits critique and reasoning and really kind of makes us dumber. Echo emphasizes that not all fascist regimes will have all of these characteristics. And some regimes or political movements with these characteristics may just be far-right or fascist-adjacent, but his list provides a good array of things to look for when trying to characterize fascism. But there is one scholar who disagrees with its authoritativeness, and that's Kevin Passmore, author of Fascism, A Very Short Introduction. Uh, by the way, the Very Short Introduction books, they are great things to read if you want a quick digest of what the scholarly consensus is about a given thing. If you are researching a thing, and you're in a bookstore, and you see a Very Short Introduction book, read it. Make it the first thing you read. After all, introduction is right there in the title. They're great. And then after that, like, Go into the bibliography and read the stuff it recommends to you. Anyway, Passmore points out that Echo's contentions are not falsifiable, and that sometimes they are broad enough that you could apply them to almost any conservative or right-wing movement and call it fascist. Maybe that was Echo's intent, but Passmore offers his own definition of fascism, which is, like all definitions of fascism, long and complicated. He says, quote, Fascism is a set of ideologies and practices that seeks to place the nation, defined in exclusive biological, cultural, and or historic terms, above all other sources of loyalty, and to create a mobilized national community. Fascist nationalism is reactionary in that it entails implacable hostility to socialism and feminism, for they are seen as prioritizing class or gender rather than nation. This is why fascism is a movement of the extreme right. Fascism is also a movement of the radical right because the defeat of socialism and feminism and the creation of the mobilized nation are held to depend upon the advent to power of a new elite acting in the name of the people, headed by a charismatic leader and embodied in a mass militarized party. Fascists are pushed towards conservatism by common hatred of socialism and feminism, but are prepared to override conservative interests, family, property, religion, the universities, the civil service, where the interests of the nation are considered to require it. Fascist radicalism also derives from a desire to assuage discontent by accepting specific demands of the labor and women's movements, so long as these demands accord with the national priority. Fascists seek to ensure the harmonization of workers' and women's interests with those of the nation by mobilizing them within special sections of the party and or within a corporate system. Access to these organizations and to the benefits they confer upon members depends on the individual's national, political, and or racial characteristics. All aspects of fascist policy are suffused with ultra-nationalism. Unquote. By the way, that 
is probably the single most concise and comprehensive definition of fascism that I read while researching this topic. And again, that speaks to how hard this single term fascism is to define. But I would also like to offer a few additional points of my own. Fascism is a reaction against modernity. It's something that pushes back again against liberalism and socialism. And both of those are grounded in rationalism. Both liberals and socialists, they will seek to prove via reason, via logic, via coherent argumentation, why their points are legitimate. That's not something that fascism does. Again, it's something that's often felt. A lot of scholars have, I think very fairly, characterize fascism as an ideology that has elements of romanticism rather than modernism or classicism in it. And when I'm talking about romanticism here, I'm not talking about, you know, having a nice date with your sweetie and flowers and candles and having a bit too much wine and then going home and like being schmoopy with each other. No, I'm talking about romantic in the literary or philosophical sense. You know, Henry David Thoreau type stuff, Emerson stuff, that. And even though most romantics probably would find fascism to be totally abhorrent, it does share some habits of thinking with romanticism as a way of thinking. Uh, in their book, Romanticism Against a Modern World, sociologists Michael Lowry and Robert Sayre characterized fascism in its romantic guise as, quote, hatred for the modern world and nostalgia for an organic community of the past, and, quote, the romantic critique of rationality is taken to its outer limits. It becomes a glorification of the irrational and the pure state, a glorification of raw instinct in its most aggressive forms. Thus, the romantic cult of love turns into its opposite, spawning praise of force and cruelty. In its fascistic version, the individual's pull of romanticism is severely attenuated, if not entirely suppressed. In fascist movement and fascist state, the unhappy romantic self disappears. Nostalgia for the past focuses more characteristically on the instinctive and violent barbaric prehistory of the human race, on Greco-Roman antiquity in its warmongering elitist slaveholding dimensions, on the mythic time of origins, unquote. And we're going to see plenty of that. We will see plenty of Italian fascists obsessing over a Roman empire that never really existed, a perfect past that they try to recreate but never will be able to. And when your ideology is based on reaction, when it's based on the rejection of other ideologies that are grounded in modernism and rationality, when it's based on the longing for an imagined past, it can of course be very hard to define core principles. Also, fascism was cynical. Or rather, fascists were cynical. Plenty of fascist leaders said what would be convenient to say for them to just accumulate power at the time. And, this is a supposition on my part, this is something... I believe, but cannot really prove. I think that a lot of the young men, and they were mostly men, who joined fascist movements had a fair amount of anger, resentment, that they were unable to explain. Fascism in Italy, in Germany, and other countries didn't ask them to explain it. It didn't ask them to articulate their rage, but it justified it. And it offered them something. It offered them an illusion, but it said, all of that resentment you feel, all of that violence you want to do, all of that feeling of being cheated by some enemy, whether real or imagined, that's good. We see that. Come with us on this journey toward power. And those guys probably had no coherent principles at all. 
And whether or not we can ever really identify fascism in a coherent and concise way, that kind of doesn't matter, because the end results of its policies are very, very real. And in the next couple of episodes, we are going to see that democratic institutions, liberal and socialist institutions, more equitable institutions will suffer, and people will die. And that is something definitive and objective and real and very, very easy to see, even if definitions of fascism are something we can never quite pin down. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com and sign up to support the podcast with a monthly donation. That would be excellent and amazing of you. Couldn't do this without you. Also, go on iTunes. Uh, do a search for Weird History. Give us a rating and review. That helps other people discover the show. Speaking of which, share the show on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, whatever social media you're on. If you know people who enjoy history, tell them to have a listen. I am on social media. I'm at Joe Streckert on Twitter. I am facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast on, well, Facebook. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.